Good evening and welcome back to the midweek service of the New York City Church of Christ. I'm so glad you've joined us again tonight. I want to welcome us back for lesson two of our series on the book of Revelation. Like last week, we have three of our regions from the New York City Church joining us online tonight. That's Brooklyn, Harlem, and Staten Island. Brothers and sisters, welcome back to church. I also want to use this opportunity to welcome our friends and family members watching online. Thank you for coming. Our guest speaker again tonight is our brother Gordon Ferguson from Dallas, Texas, doing our Revelation series. All classes will be recorded and you can listen to them again on our website, on our YouTube channel. I encourage you to share the lessons with your friends and family if they cannot attend. At this time, I want to ask my wife, Sarah, to go ahead and unmute yourself and lead us in an opening prayer. Amen. <clears throat> Shall we pray? Holy Father, we thank you for being our God and Father. Thank you so much for today that we can gather through Zoom to hear your word being taught, Father. Thank you, Father, that you are a rock and shield, that you do not change like the shifting shadows, and that you can be easily found when we seek you, Father. I pray that you be with us as we learn even more about the book of Revelation. I pray that you be with us, be with our hearts and our minds open in a lot, uh, our hearts and minds to learn and grow and be taught by God. I pray, Father, you fill him up with your Holy Spirit and strength. I pray especially to Father for Teresa, his wife, and all those who are sick, that you bring healing, Father. Be with us tonight. I pray all this trusting and believing in your name. Amen. Lead me to the lead me to the rock that is higher than I, higher than I, higher than I. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. You're my tower against the foe. Hear my cry, O God. Answer my prayers. Answer my prayers. Answer my prayer, Answer my prayer, you're my tower against the foe. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, higher than I, higher than I. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, you're my tower against the foe. I'll take refuge in the shelter of your wings, the shelter of your wings, the shelter of your wings. I'll take refuge in the shelter of your wings, you're my tower against the foe. I'll fulfill my vows, day after day, day after day, day after day. I fulfill my vows day after day on my tower against the fool. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, higher than I, higher than I. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, you're my tower against the fool. You're my tower. Against you're my tower against you're my tower against the foe. You're my tower against you're my tower against you're my tower against. Against. You're my tower against 
tower against the floor. One last time, you're my tower against. You're my tower against. You're my tower against the floor. Good evening. I am Scott Kirkpatrick. I will be introducing our speaker for the evening. Uh, it's, my, it's my privilege to have this uh, chance to introduce our speaker. Uh, but before I do that, if we could uh, turn on our cameras, I know many of us scroll through to see our, our beautiful faces. That would be fantastic. But without further ado, uh, it is an honor to be able to introduce our speaker uh, for the evening, Mr. Gordon Ferguson. Uh, Richard did it last week. And uh, if you were not here last week, I'll share with you about some things about our speaker. Gordon is, uh, he's 80 years old, or 80 years young, uh, because he is a young man. Uh, he's been married to uh, Teresa, his wife, for 58 years. They have two children and five grandchildren. And uh, Gordon is a very intelligent man. He has many degrees, much, much uh, schooling. I won't go through all the schooling because I wanted to get to a point where I share personally about who this man is and what it means, to, what he means for me. Uh, he's been in the ministry for over 50 years. He's preached and taught on the continent of, of, of Europe, Asia, and the Americas. Uh, you know, he was an instructor at the uh, Preston School of Preaching in Dallas. He was the director of the New England uh, Continental Europe and the Pacific School of Ministry out in L.A. Uh, he's written many books, 17 books, many audio and video material. Uh, he has... He's had the role of evangelist, elder, teacher, in many various roles in our movement. And I remember something very specific going, I don't know if you remember this, but back in Singapore in 2014, uh, you took me out to, to dinner and we had a conversation and you said to me, you said, Scott, uh, I'm coming in the, the last quarter of my life and I wanted to, I want to make sure that I devote myself to making a difference with diversity in our movement. And uh, and I remember us having a conversation like it was yesterday, bro. And that impacted my life and in my heart so much. And, and so Gordon became a part of the, the ICOC squad. And let me tell you, he has made such an impact on that team and such an impact in our movement when it comes to diversity. Bro, you will always have a special place in my heart. I love you deeply. And thank you so much for being here, bro, and really helping us understand the book of Revelation. I, and without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to our uh, hero of the faith, uh, Gordon Ferguson. Amen. Uh, thank you very much, Scott. Uh, we have had some good times together. I remember that conversation. I was privileged to be a part of the uh, squad for our movement. I finally decided that uh, we had enough white guys on there, or at least white looking guys like me. And uh, so uh, I felt like that base was covered and it should be primarily those of color. And so uh, at that point I stepped off the group, but I still uh, do a lot of teaching and writing on the subject of race. Uh, I'm a sort of crazy guy. Most people think I'm crazy. Uh, and uh, probably weird uh, on the scale up to maybe about 67.5% weird. But at any rate, uh, I, I have a sense of humor. But a part of my humor for a lot of years was telling people that I had to have some black blood in me because I had too much soul to be a white man. <laughs> and uh, I, I really believed that. But finally, one of the elders in Houston that's uh, probably at least non-white uh, half non-white. I worked with him quite a while. So one of the elders, Ronnie Ricks, a very good friend uh, who is black, he said, uh, you know, you can take a DNA test. And so I thought, well, uh, if I take a DNA test and I don't have any African blood in me, that, that's going to be embarrassing. 
uh, after I've said all that I have. But anyway, I finally took the DNA test and Ronnie was the first one I called. I was so excited, uh, 12%. And uh, I traced everything back and figured out it was my great grandmother. At least I got it honestly without the way uh, most people get mixed blood. Uh, but at any rate, uh, she was a Cherokee, she said, but evidently she was an African Cherokee because I had no indigenous American in me at all. And 12% would be just right. 12.5% would be uh, my mix there. And so I was uh, very happy to find out that I wasn't wrong all those years. And all of my black friends through the years thought I had to have some black blood in me as well also. So Scott and I have a special tie with that, as do Richard and I. We have some uh, side jokes here we'll keep to ourselves, but at any rate, uh, that is a very important part of my life, diversity. Uh, Ephesians 2 says that the mystery of Christ is to put Jew and Gentile together, and nothing else in the world could do that, and that's the same with us. Well, you can't put the races together without Jesus, really, as far as us being true spiritual family of God. And so I've got a lot of thoughts on that one. I've uh, actually been up in your area speaking before on the subject, and I've spoken in a number of areas back uh, during the uh, Ferguson riots uh, outside of uh, St. Louis there. I was actually speaking on a Sunday uh, in uh, our sister church there uh, when all of that was going on in Ferguson, two miles away. And so uh, we just said we got Ferguson in Ferguson today. And so uh, I do uh, have a lot of very strong convictions about the racial issue, have read a lot, written a lot, et cetera. But tonight's revelation, okay? And so I'm going to share the screen here and throw up my slide presentation and pick up where I was last week. See if this will kick up there. Good. There we go. So last week, enjoyed being with you very much and teaching, and I hope it was helpful. Uh, Scott or someone contacted me and uh, said, can we get your uh, PowerPoints out there and give that away? And I said, sure, be, be glad to do that. Just feel free to share whatever. Uh, once it's out there on the web anyway, it's, it's, it's public domain. So uh, I don't try to keep anything to myself. I've got a million uh, sermon outlines and things I've presented and passed out and whatever. So lesson two, I want to talk a little further about the introduction to the book itself. Last week, we talked about an introduction uh, to the kind of language that Revelation is written in, and that is what we call apocalyptic language. The word revelation in Greek, apocalypsis, uh, is the uh, background of it, but apocalyptic language is a type of symbolic language that was used in the nation of Israel, especially a couple of centuries before Jesus and a couple of centuries after. And so the people that got this book originally uh, had a lot of help in how to read it and how to interpret the symbols. Uh, the Jewish people among the church at the time could do that for themselves and for the Gentiles. And so Revelation was not quite the mystery to them that it can be to us. But I think we can clear up a lot of the mysteries as we go through it. And so we'll finish introducing the book itself tonight and uh, go on through chapters uh, one through six. So, well, if your clicker doesn't click, try something else. Huh. We did this last week. I'm clicking the right thing here, so. Not quite sure what's going on. Okay, that worked. Okay, chapter one introduces the book. The writer, who was John the Apostle, he wrote the Gospel of John and also 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the epistles. Uh, he was the only apostle that evidently was not martyred for his faith. He lived to be an old man. In fact, uh, if the dates are anywhere near correct, that people assigned to the book of Revelation, uh, he had to be a teenager as an apostle when he started off. Uh, that's uh, the only way you can come up with the, the dates if they're correct. But anyway, he is introduced, he introduces the book, 
And then in the last part of the chapter, Jesus is described. He has a vision on the Lord's day. By the way, on the Lord's day, uh, he has a vision of Jesus in his glory. And it's a very, very striking introduction to Jesus. And uh, as we go through, uh, we'll see that introduction repeated in chapters two and three uh, in an introductory way that I'll explain. The seven churches that are described in chapters two and three are actual churches. We said last week that the number seven shows up a lot in Revelation because it was the number of perfection. So usually it's symbolic. And in a way, these seven churches in chapters two and three are symbolic. They stand for the church of the first century. They're all in Asia Minor but they describe the church as it was at the end of the first century. And of course, the church was established somewhere around AD 30. So 70 years later, what did the church look like? And so you can read all about uh, the church in Ephesus uh, when you uh, read in Acts uh, some things about it. But then when you read the epistle to the Ephesians, uh, you can find out how things were at that time a little after mid-century, but then toward the end of the century, you get a real view of where Ephesus was, and there were good and bad things about them. So you've got seven mentioned in a symbolic way, and yet they are literal, and I think that they stood pretty much for what the church universal was like at that point. And so when you put all of them together, you get all the strength strengths and the weaknesses of the church at the end of the first century. And so uh, we'll get uh, to that here in a moment. Now, John explains, uh, dealing with a date here, John explains in, in chapter one, verse nine, that he was, quote, on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The ancient writer Irenaeus, who uh, would have been around uh, less than 100 years after John. Uh, he says that the banishment of John to Patmos was during the Emperor Domitian's reign, and that was uh, 81 AD uh, to 96. But we're going to uh, pick that apart a little bit when we get to chapter 17, because he names uh, some kings, not by name, but he numbers them. And I think it is a literal sequence of emperors. And the best I can come up with is that John received his visions uh, during the reign of the emperor Vespasian, but then later published it during Domitian's time after returning from Patmos. In that sense, it would be a true predictive prophecy because what he was describing was not yet taking place and yet it was about to take place. And by the way, uh, you've got to look at Revelation, not as a 21st century newspaper. These people are about to be giving their lives, thousands and thousands of them. They're going to be giving their lives uh, because of the persecution. And when you are facing what they faced, you had to have some answers. You had to have something that spoke to you. And so some 21st century newspaper type thing uh, would not have done them any good and they needed help right then. So that's one reason that I don't buy into all the end time philosophies that I described last week because it would not fit the church and the needs that they had in that day. And so that alone makes a lot of sense to me. But then when you really look at the bigger picture and the symbols, uh, you figure out, no, this is uh, early church stuff because of persecution. And so we'll talk about the date a little later. Now, uh, there are some things here that we want to look at, the basic uh, way that the churches are outlined in chapters two and three. They all follow this outline. Now, not everyone has every one of these points uh, mentioned, but it starts off with a greeting, as you would expect any letter to do. And then you have a description of Jesus and the symbols describing him, the way he's described in his dress, his clothing uh, is 
from chapter one. And so there'll be a piece from chapter one to describe Jesus briefly in each of these seven letters to the churches. And then you get the commendation, the good things, the attaboys, pats on the back, things you're doing well. And then most of them, uh, with a couple of exceptions, had some condemnation, some criticism, strong criticism, as we will see. When you're dealing with Jesus, he doesn't beat around the bush. I mean, you read the gospel accounts, and I'm reading the New Testament uh, once a month now. I'm going through it a lot. You read through those gospel accounts, and Jesus uh, did not beat it around the bush. Uh, he didn't just utter a bunch of nice little sayings that would make a good Hallmark greeting card. He laid it out. And so when there was condemnation to be given to those churches, he gave it, and we'll see that in just a moment. Then he gave them an appeal and a warning. Here's what you need to do, and if you don't, you're in trouble. And then he gave an exhortation to repent and change and be what you need to be. And then he gave a promise that if you do repent, here is what you'll be blessed with. And basically, it's always eternal life with God forever. And so they have the basic outline, each of the seven churches. Now, the big issue was basically the idea of compromise. Now, let me say to uh, my Spanish translator here tonight that I've worked in two slides, this one and the next one, that I didn't have when I sent this out originally. So this is the updated version, and I will send this, uh, uh, by the way, if I haven't, I'll send the updated version to uh, Richard, and he can pass it out from there, or Scott, or to both. But the context of the book of Revelation is intense persecution. And you get that early on in Revelation 2, when he's writing to the church at Smyrna. He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. About to suffer. So this was yet in the future, but not far in the future. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days, not literally, that's one of those complete numbers, 10 is, and he says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown, and so that was what was about to un, uh, unfold here. Uh, in these churches and really ultimately all over the empire. But the challenge was to resist the compromises. There are several teachings mentioned. The teaching of Balaam, chapter 2, verse 14. You'll have to do all your own reading of the text. I don't have time to do all that. But you remember Balaam from the Old Testament. He was the one that uh, got the Israelites involved. Uh, he was uh, actually should have been a prophet for God, but he uh, influenced the king Balak, and they ended up getting the Israelites in the wilderness wandering involved in idolatry and in sexual immorality. Uh, then you've got the teaching of the Nicolaitans mentioned. We don't know exactly what that was, but uh, it had to be something very, very similar to what uh, was being talked about with Balaam, because we'll see when we think about uh, temple worship and what took place, uh, we will see that you had uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols as a big issue, and also sexual immorality. That was a part of, of worshiping the fertility goddess. And so temples were a rough place to hang out. They did do a lot of financial dealings there. It was kind of like a banking business there. But they had these feasts. A lot of the trade unions met there and ate meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And they participated in the idol sacrifice. Uh, and then they had the fertility goddesses that were worshipped. And so you actually had men go in there and have sex with these women who were priestesses for their religion. So it was a tough place to be, but it put a lot of pressure on people, even Christians, to compromise because uh, that's where their business met, uh, their trade guilds. They met there. 
And uh, it was so tempting to continue to be a part of that and find ways to justify it. And uh, it happened over and over. In uh, chapter two, he talks about the teaching of Jezebel. And if you remember from the Old Testament, Ahab and Jezebel were two of the very worst king and queens in the Old Testament. And so Jezebel was even worse than Ahab, and that was saying a lot. But these are people that sound good, but they make a good point. They rationalize, but they compromise. And God says, you're going to end up in hell over this one if you don't repent. So the influence of Gnosticism was all tied up in this. Now, Gnosticism, uh, based on the word knowledge, Gnosticism was the idea that uh, anything material was bad. The body was bad. The spirit is all that mattered. And so out of this teaching of Gnosticism that material things were bad and the body itself was bad, only the spirit inside mattered. Because of that, we came up with all kinds of uh, uh, slight deviations that work different ways. You have asceticism in the New Testament. And so in Colossians 2, he's talking about uh, uh, the Old Testament law was the shadow and Jesus is the real thing. And so don't get caught back up in Sabbath days and feast days and all of that. You can read the passage there. But he says this thing of saying, don't taste, don't touch, all of that. He says, that, that's crazy. It, 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 it doesn't help one thing against uh, our sinful nature to do that. First uh, Timothy 4 and verse 3, I think we mentioned last week, where there were those that forbade people to marry and commanded them to abstain from certain foods, which Timothy was told, uh, these are created by God. The foods are created by God to be enjoyed by those who believe and know the truth. So asceticism, self-denial in the ultimate extreme sense of uh, uh, denying the body in almost every way, even marriage or eating uh, a lot of different kinds of foods. It, re it reminds me of a diet, you know, I, a lot of different diets. I've tried most of them. Uh, one way to lose weight, I found out, was to uh, nearly die and uh, to spend 23 days in the hospital uh, thinking you're on the brink of eternity about to go. Uh, that took a lot of weight off me. Two, two weeks without eating anything or having any kind of nourishment come through my veins, two weeks without food, I lost a lot of weight. But anyway, the diet I was talking about is real simple. You don't have to count carbs or proteins or, or calories or none of that stuff. Here's the diet. If it tastes good, spit it out. That's about, uh, you know, what diet seemed like to me. So asceticism. Then you had uh, what would be called libertinism or antinomianism. Uh, the libertine doctrine was, since the flesh is bad, do anything you want. Uh, antinomianism means against law no law, so no rules, regulations, do whatever you want. That is in Revelation 2 and 3, especially a lot. So that was the big one. You got it in 2 Peter chapter 2, especially. You got it in the book of Jude. Uh, people that were saying, yeah, you can be sexually immoral. That's uh, it, It's just the body after all. Uh, as long as you got the spirit right, everything's cool. And so you got a lot of that in Revelation, but also, especially in Jude and in Second Peter. Then you've got asceticism or docetism. Uh, that is the one that we talked about in First and Second John uh, that regarded Jesus' nature. Jesus could not have been flesh, they taught. So he seemed to be. And so that is the docetic doctrine. He seemed to be flesh and blood, but he really wasn't. And so when you read 1 John's beginning, you get the point that John is going to hammer them over the head with that one. And then he five times mentions the Antichrist. But he said the Antichrist was defined as the one who denied Jesus by denying that he came in the flesh. And so you have that part of the Gnostic doctrine coming through in that way regarding Jesus' nature. And then you have the one 
about mystical knowledge. I mean, if you really have the spirit developed, then it doesn't matter what is written down. It doesn't matter what somebody wrote down or what some prophet preached. You've got this special pipeline to heaven, to God himself. And so it doesn't matter what it says. You can read between the lines and get the real message. That was the idea. And so in Revelation 2, he just discusses it. He says, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. And so those that hadn't fallen prey to that, he says, uh, stay with it. You got it right. And these so-called uh, deep secrets from God are not that. Now, they said these are God's deep secrets that we're sharing with you. And uh, John wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no, no, no. They're not God's deep secrets. There are Satan's so-called deep secrets, but they're lies. Don't listen to them. I'm a Bible guy. Uh, I've read all kinds of books that try to tear the Bible apart, say it's not really the word of God. Uh, when I was uh, in seminary, I read all kinds of books that uh, took the, the Bible apart. I've read many books. I've heard many people speak on the subject. Uh, I got one word for that, hogwash. I believe the Bible is exactly what it claims to be. I believe it is the inspired word of God. I have staked my life and I will stake my death on that. Nearly did. But uh, I believe the Bible. He calls the woman here that's influencing them in that way, Jezebel. And so there's the influence of Gnosticism. The uh, two types of persecution. I guess it's the last slide and this slide that were the new ones to the Spanish uh, translator here. The two types of persecution. Uh, it began with Jewish persecution. And so Revelation mentions that. That was going to be the early stage of persecution. And in fact, it started super early, right? Stephen was killed in Acts chapter 7 early on in the church. And then Paul, when he was still Saul and unconverted, he was killing people right and left, putting them in jail, beating them, killing them, whatever. But in Revelation, he says this in chapter 2 and verse 9, the last part, he says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but you, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, that was not the sign over the door. The sign over the door said synagogue of the Lord. That's what it said. But God says, no, they're a synagogue of Satan because they have not accepted their Messiah, Jesus, and they are persecuting those who did accept Jesus as their Messiah. Same idea, chapter 3, verse 9, church at Philadelphia. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. And so last week, we talked about Zionism. And the idea that the Jewish nation is still God's special nation and special plans and all of that, uh, the only plan God has for any Jewish person. I have Jewish people in my family. Uh, by marriage, I have uh, many friends with Jewish uh, blood and background who are Christians now. Uh, I have nothing against. I, I'm not anti-Semitic in the least. I'm sort of the other way. I admire people that have Abraham as their father twice, once physically and once spiritually. But at any rate, the idea uh, about Zionism and, and that the Jews are these special people, uh, Paul said clearly in Galatians, we are the Israel of God. We are the true Jews. And so when you read the New Testament, you cannot come out with that view. Uh, and so these people claim to be uh, God's special people. He says, no, no. He says they're liars. They didn't accept Jesus as a basic idea. Romans 9, the end of that can tell you all about it. 
And he says, I'm going to make them come and fall at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, going on to the Roman persecution, the early stuff was Jewish persecution that took place pretty much immediately after the church got established. It didn't take long. Uh, so the Jews were the persecutors to begin with. But then it progressed to Roman persecution. Now, when the church first started, the uh, Christians were considered, by the Romans at least, and, and by a lot of Jews, to be sort of a sect or a division within Judaism. So you had the Essenes, you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Herodians, and you had the Christians. And so at first, they were viewed as a part of Judaism. In fact, in uh, Acts 28, when Paul pulls the Jews together after he gets there to visit with Caesar, uh, after his appeal back in Caesarea, anyway, uh, he pulls the uh, Jewish leaders in, and they said, well, we hadn't heard that much about you, but we've heard that this sect was everywhere spoken against. And so they were considered a renegade, rogue sect of the Jews. But that didn't last too long. And then it became obvious that no, they are not just simply a division of the Jews. This is a new deal. And new religions were not allowed in Rome. When a nation was taken over by Rome or absorbed by Rome, even if they turned themselves in on that, uh, when they became a part of Rome, the rule was you can keep whatever religion you have because there were tons of different religions in those days, but you could not start a new one. And so if you started a new one, it was a uh, religio illicita. That was the Latin term for it, an unlawful religion. So once the nation of Rome figured out, no, Christians are not simply Jews uh, or a sect of the Jews, that's when the persecution began uh, with the Roman Empire and the emperors in particular bringing about the persecution, and we'll get to all of that. Okay, now let's look at a few of these churches and what's said about them. I'll just pick out three of the seven that uh, I want to mention because there's some lessons in there I think we need. He says to the church at Ephesus, that's his first one that he addresses. He says, I know your deeds your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have, grown, and have not grown weary. Wow, that's pretty impressive, don't you think? I mean, a lot of good things were said about them, but now comes the word yet. Yet, verse 4, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Take your spiritual life away. And uh, then he concludes by saying, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So they had some very good things about them. Somebody said they were strong in doctrine and weak in love for Jesus. And as I read that one, I always think about myself and, you know, my first love. How was it as a new convert? How were we when we first discovered Jesus? How excited were we? How much did we talk about him? Uh, how much did we pray and talk with him? Uh, and he says, you've forsaken your first love. And so when he says, repent and do the things you did at first, they're already doing a lot. I don't think he's talking about adding to the list of different things to do. I think he's talking about how they did it, the heart they had in doing it. And so our duty, doing our duty is not enough. It's got to be our desire not simply our duty. And so there's some lessons in there. You need to do some thinking and praying about that one as I do and as I do every time I teach this because I think, okay, Gordon, 
uh, what's it like now? My wife started uh, 2023 off in thinking about this, maybe not this passage, but she basically had a friend, a really good friend who is a really solid disciple. Uh, we've been good friends uh, with, with the couple. He, the, the man is dead now, but he was a counselor well-known in our movement way back in the day, Hardy Tillman. But uh, Brenda is still a very close friend of ours. And Teresa and Brenda talk a lot and share a lot, but she had Brenda go through and count the cost with her, just like you were counting the cost with someone before you baptize them. And so basically my wife was asking the question, would I baptize myself like I am right now? And she does it periodically. And I'll guarantee you, she passes that test. But there's a lot of us, folks, getting honest here, a lot of us might not pass that test. Do we have our first love? Are we acting on it? Is it obvious to everyone? Have we lost our zeal? Never be lacking in zeal, Romans 12. That's what he says. So a lot of lessons there. We'll let the preachers preach that later. All right, the next one is Sardis. And I had this one in there uh, for a reason. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And so here's a church that thought well of itself, and probably some of the sister congregations thought well about it, but that doesn't mean it was right. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Talking about spiritually. The uh, righteous are always pictured as dressed in white, which stood for purity uh, as a color. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. One reason I've used this passage a lot is because people can get uh, negative about their church family and decide, okay, I, I, I don't like this anymore. This is not what I signed on for. I'm leaving. And there are a lot of people that walk away rather than stay and try to help change. And so he, what does he say? He says, you just got a few people in Sardis, a small minority who are doing right. So what does he tell them to do? Just keep doing right. He didn't tell them to move to Ephesus or Philadelphia or some other church. He told them to hang in there, do what's right, try to influence your brothers and sisters to do right. I mean, that's just the way God is. Go after some lost sheep and let's get this thing straight and help people out. And I, I'm just saying, uh, I, I'm in here for the long haul. I got in this movement in 1985. Uh, I'm going to be in it when they uh, bury me or turn me into some ashes and dump them out in a lake or wherever they want to dump them. Uh, I, I, I'm here. Jesus is Lord. The church isn't Lord. The leader of the church isn't Lord. Uh, that's not the one I follow. I follow Jesus, and I'm going to follow him till the day I die. Uh, have I seen some leaders that I would uh, think uh, should not have been in their role? Sure. Uh, and sometimes they repent and stay in their role. Sometimes they get out. Uh, but we, we always gang up on leaders. And a lot of people are doing that right now. And it's not about uh, the leaders and you ganging up on them. Uh, God can deal with them. And I pray. I mean, there are people I pray. God, either help these dudes repent or take them out. I pray that. Absolutely, I do. And I have been a part of taking some out because they were not spiritual and they uh, were undeserving of being in a leadership position. But this is my family, and uh, my wife and I both came out of some pretty dysfunctional families. I don't have time to tell you about it, 
but we got uh, we got murderers on both sides. We got people done jail time on both sides. I mean, we, we got stories. Uh, I did not come out of a nice, nice, neat little family at all. So I know what dysfunction is. Uh, and I know that in the church family, in God's family, we got some dysfunction going on. But we need to be a part of helping make it right and not running away. That will preach. You dudes can preach it later. All right, Scott. <laughs> I see Scott saying, yeah. All right, now, Laodicea, he says, I wish uh, that you were either hot or cold. He says, you're, you're neither. You're lukewarm. He says, uh, I wish that you were one or the other, hot or cold, but, but because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You make me sick to my stomach, in other words. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. Uh, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. Of course, he's talking about spiritual gold, obviously. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. He's talking about actually commerce in that city. They had a nice out they were famous for. And so he, he's really talking about uh, clothing industry, ISAL, uh, uh, financial stuff going on there. It was a very rich city. And they thought, well, I've got it made here. They, uh, we have the great American dream, right? And they had the great uh, Laodicean dream. And it wasn't great. And it wasn't a dream, it was a nightmare. So he said, listen, those I love, I discipline. I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and uh, opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his th throne. Wow, that had quite some promise there, don't you think? Now, two things. Definition of lukewarm. I have heard people say sometimes, well, this church is lukewarm. You're not fired up. Your song service stinks. Uh, the preaching is lame and whatever else they want to say. But the definition of lukewarm in Laodicea was not how excited they were in the service, though I think we should be. I'm not saying I don't like dead church services. I like some fire in there. I like some great singing, some excitement. And uh, we, we've got a lot of good singing here going on in Dallas. We got a brother that leads uh, the uh, ministry, uh, uh, worship ministry in our region who comes out of a family. He says he's uh, the least talented of all. And that dude is really talented. But his mother is a professional gospel singer. Uh, in black churches in Chicago. And so uh, this this guy, I mean, we get up on an all-church service like we had last Sunday. We didn't do it last Sunday because we had a uh, guy, Hammond, teaching, and he had a longer sermon. But a lot of times we'll have a gospel choir on this big stage, and I mean, it, it, it rocks. It's great. I love all that. But the definition of lukewarm in Laodicea was they were rich. They had the great uh, Laodicean dream of money and materialism, and God said, you're so lukewarm, uh, you make me sick. Uh, by the way, in verse 20, Jesus standing at the door and knocking, and if you open the door and let me in and all that, I've seen so many churches use this, is here's how you become a Christian. Just open up your heart, let Jesus in, and pray the sinner's prayer or some such thing, and you're saved. This was not written to non-Christians to tell them how to become Christians. You better go back to Acts on that one. Uh, start in Acts 2 and go from there. But uh, this was written to Christians who needed to repent and let Jesus back in because he was outside trying to get back into their lives, but they were materialistic and had lost it, and Jesus is wanting back in. So that's not uh, some description of how to accept Christ initially and become a Christian. 
We have to go to some other passages that actually address that topic. This is a different topic written to people who had already become Christians, but they had backslidden to the point they were outside the door and needed to knock on it and get back in. All right, now we've got six seals. Well, uh, we'll, we'll get to the seals in a minute. But we start off in chapters four and five, just introducing God on the throne and Jesus as well. So God is pictured in chapter four, the Father, Christ in chapter five, very much like you would expect from John 14, you believe in God, believe also in me. That's how Jesus ordered it, and that's what you see in Revelation. Chapter four introduces us to the grandeur and majesty of God, the Father, and then uh, in chapter five, he'll go on and introduce Christ, getting the right view of God. He is our Father, our Abba Father, but he's so often pictured in the Old Testament and in Revelation as high and lifted up and mighty, God of gods, King of kings, uh, all of that. And uh, the question why, because we need it, but we also need Jesus to really understand the Father. And so in John 14, he's telling his apostles, you've been around me. You, you've therefore seen, uh, you, you, you have come to know God and you've seen God. And Philip said, wait a minute, just show us the Father. That'll be enough. That'll suffice. And Jesus looked at him and he says, have I been so long time with you, Philip, and you don't even know who I am? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So because God was hard to figure out just from the Old Testament, he emptied himself and became a man. Deity became a man to show us God. Uh, I'm watching that series Chosen. I've been through all of it uh, up to now. They're, they're about to get to episode seven, uh, six and seven or seven and eight, whatever it is. But uh, I, I love to see that because Jesus is real in that series. I like that series uh, because he is real. And uh, it gets uh, the heat's turning up and going to turn up a whole lot more from this point forward in the series. But if you see Jesus, you see God. You understand God by seeing Jesus. In chapter five, worthy is the lamb. It starts off with a sealed book. You know, they wrote on parchment or they wrote on animal skins. They rolled it all up into a round thing and put wax seals on it to hold it uh, like you lick an envelope. They put uh, wax seals on it. If it was an official document, a classified document, as we have in the news so much right now, Everybody's got classified documents uh, all around. But at any rate, if it was a classified official document, they rolled it up and sealed it with a big glob of wax and put the signet ring in it. And that showed this came from the king or whatever official. And you better not be caught opening that one. Well, there was writing on both sides, which was not the usual thing with a scroll. But uh, that would suggest a very full revelation that the book of Revelation is about. And so it was sealed with seven seals. That's the number of perfection. And that means that it was so sealed that no creature could open or see the message. And John, no one could open it. And he wept. He, he, was, he, he just it broke his heart that he couldn't know what was in that scroll because obviously it had a tremendously important message. And so then the lamb is described. The angel told John, look at the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns around to look at a lion and he sees a lamb that was slain, uh, standing as though he had been slain. And so he was the lion, but he was the lamb as well. Beautiful picture. And he was the one that could open the book. He comes up and takes it. And the way it's written in the Greek, it shows that he came up very dramatically and unhesitatingly and grabbed it and opened it up. And of course, that would be the contents of the book uh, that we're going to get into with the symbolism. And so that was what was going on in chapters four, uh, four and five. And to me, that's a beautiful picture. 
You know, the Jews wanted a lion to come in and eat up Rome, but uh, they got a lamb. And actually, we got both. When you read Revelation, they're both there. Jesus is in charge of the show, and he's going to be in charge of the show until it's all over. I mean, sometimes people wonder, well, why did this happen? How did this happen? Listen, nothing catches God by surprise, and the lamb is in charge. And so we can trust that. A lot of things happen I don't understand. But in the end of the day, I've just got to say, Lord, this is above my pay grade. Do your thing. And so I often pray, nevertheless, that's what Jesus said in the garden, deliver me, but nevertheless, even if you don't, uh, your will be done. And then I love those three young men in Daniel's day, and they're about to get thrown into a fire pit. I mean, it was all heated up. And they were about to go in the fire pit. And uh, they said, well, king, we're not going to bow down to you. We're not going to worship a man. We are servants of the most high God. and He can deliver us from this fire. But even if, I love that song by Mercy Me, even if he doesn't deliver us, throw us on in there, he'll take care of us anyway. And we'll be on the other side of all this craziness anyway. So uh, great, great uh, chapter. Now, quickly, we go through the seals. Uh, I've done a little more preaching tonight. Hard not to do that. But when he has this, the uh, scroll, it's got seven seals. And so as he opens a seal, I mean, obviously, that doesn't open the whole scroll. This is symbolism. But the seal itself stands for something. And so you have four seals that are horses. A lot of horse symbolism in Zechariah. Beasts, animals, beasts especially, are usually going to be nations. But it, or leaders of nations. But anyway, uh, you've got the horse symbolism coming from Zechariah in particular, one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. But you have a white horse that comes galloping across the stage, and that stands for the preaching of the gospel, because he's explaining how all of this got started and how all of it's going to keep going. Uh, you start preaching the gospel that is the white horse. In chapter 19, Jesus is the rider on the white horse with a sword, conquering, because that's what he does. But it, he conquers through the sword of the Spirit, the preaching of the gospel. And so you're sitting in there in the audience, and there's this huge stage, and all of a sudden a white horse comes running out and crosses the stage, and wow! Uh, but that stands for the preaching of the gospel. Well, if you really preach it in that setting they had, what happens next? You get a red horse, you get blood shed, and you get war. And so persecution closely follows the preaching of the gospel. Peace, it says, was taken from the earth. They slay one another. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 10. He said, don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Uh -uh. He says, I came to bring conflict. He said, I came to set a man against his father, the daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be those of his own household. And so uh, that's what happens. When the gospel got preached, uh, then bloodshed came. And all that was approaching them. Of course, it started back with uh, Saul of Tarsus killing Christians with the Jewish early persecution but the Romans are going to be in the big middle of this soon. Then the uh, next one is the uh, uh, black horse, and that stands for economic discrimination against Christians. If you look at the products in verse 6, uh, the ones that really got hit were the necessities, but you get down to the oil and wine, which you could do without, and he says don't harm them. And so uh, economic discrimination is in view in that one, and that's going to come back up in chapter 13 with the emperor, the, uh, the uh, land beast that will, I mean, the sea beast, actually, that we'll look at uh, maybe next week or the week after. Then the fourth seal is the pale horse, and the rider was called Death and Hades. And Hades simply means the realm of the dead. There's a good side of it, a bad side of it. I don't have time to uh, break all that out. But uh, when you die, you go to Hades. And so that accompanies uh, what is going on in the persecution process or scheme or different steps. 
And he mentions four methods of killing that you find in Ezekiel as well. Then he goes from there and he talks about the uh, martyred saints, the ones that are under the altar. In the Levitical sacrifice system, the blood of the animal that was being sacrificed was poured at the base of the altar. And so it pictures here because these guys have been martyred. They have been sacrificed. The ones that are shown, they are underneath the altar, wanting to know how long before you avenge our blood. And God says, well, be patient. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. But there are more that are going to have to go through this like you. Just rest for a time and God will avenge, but it's not yet complete. Uh, so those are the first uh, uh, five seals. And then you get uh, the answer to the prayers of those under the altar. Uh, that God is going to bring judgment. And so he basically introduces the concept of judgment and he uses symbolic language found all through the Old Testament. Earthquake, sun blackened, moon turns to blood, stars falling, heavens rolled up, hills and islands move, mountains and rocks fall on us. All of this is Old Testament symbolism that he just borrows and applies it to their situation. It wasn't a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. It was simply the same wording used to describe similar circumstances in the New Testament uh, when great upheavals were coming. Probably this one stands for temporal judgment by natural calamity. I think it's a bit too early for the final judgment. Uh, we are going to get to that twice before the book is over, where I think the uh, seventh trumpet sounds and we're at the end. But uh, the first time we get there, he's going to give you another half of the book to describe a deeper way to look at it and what actually brought it about. So that is uh, the presentation for tonight. And you can look that uh, outlines over the uh, PowerPoint or whatever, or see it on wherever you post it. But uh, that gets us into the book. Gets us into the early symbolism, and it will build from there. We are looking at what was going to take place in the early uh, couple of centuries of the church. Got really, really bad. And of course, you know about the Colosseum and people being killed by animals and Christians being slaughtered and whatever else. It started with Nero earlier. Domitian really brought it uh, a lot further, and then later emperors even worse. And so we'll get into all of that, and I hope that it makes sense to you. But uh, definitely the introduction of Jesus and the Father, that makes sense. Uh, then you get into the seals that become signs themselves, and so you understand why the persecution took place. You had the preaching, and then people get killed for that, and they get discriminated against economically, and finally they end up dead under the altar, asking for God to bring vengeance, and he will. And we'll meet them again in chapter 20 when they are raised up and sitting on thrones, and that's Revelation 20. So I've gone fast tonight, and my computer worked better, and uh, I appreciate you hanging in there with me. You're going to have to read a lot of Bible yourself. I don't have time to go through all the text. I'm trying to give you an overview and an outline to look at so that you can hang your hat on the main high points as you go through the text itself. So that will do it for me tonight. Love you guys. I love God's church. I know sometimes we're a mess. Sometimes I'm a mess. Sometimes I don't know why God puts up with me. Uh, I especially don't know why my wife puts up with me, but 58 years coming up in a couple of weeks, uh, we've had a, a great marriage, mainly because of her. But at any rate, uh, I love uh, being married. I love being married to Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 5, we are a part of the bride of Christ. I love God's church, and I love you. All right, thank you, thank you so much, uh, Professor Ferguson, uh, for for bringing us into a, a, a second week of this. You see, there's many hands yeah. clapping on the on the screens right now. Thank you so much for 
for your time and your wisdom. I'm going to pray, and then I believe um, that'll at least begin to wrap up our our, our service here. Um, so let, let's pray. Uh, God in heaven, thank you so much um, for your love, God. Thank you for for the Bible, God. Thank you for your church. Um, and, and in a very special way, God, as we're as we're taking this time to look at at the Book of Revelation, Father, th- thank thank you for thank you for being victorious and having us be on your side, God. Um, thank you for the promise of heaven. Thank you for the promise of salvation. I pray that we never take for granted everything you needed to do to give us an opportunity to live forever with you, Father. Thank you for your love, um, and I pray that we can uh, do our best on this side uh, to be who you call us to be. Uh, God, just for the 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 um, the, the families on, on this call, I pray that you can keep us safe, protect us. God, keep us uh, in line with your will. Um, please bless our families and, and, and protect us as we go. Uh, God, um, and for, for Harlem, God, I pray that you can uh, just bless our Bible Talk Leaders meeting this Saturday. I pray that that um, that uh, it, it can be a time of of equipping and growth and inspiration, God. And I pray also for our our parenting devotional on Sunday. I pray that the families can be uh, just uh, moved by by your by your word and your will for their lives. God, I pray that all of us can be um, just consistently inspired and motivated by you. I pray that that the outcome of 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 our commitment to you can be so many people seeing how real you are and how how powerful and relevant you are in, in, in their lives. God, thank you again for your love. Thank you for this time. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.